insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast with Sean Martin. Have you ever thought that we're selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Well, perhaps we are. Let's look at how we can organize a successful information security program that integrates business culture with people, process, and technology to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. Everybody, you are very welcome to a new episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here on ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. I am Sean Martin, your host of the show where I get to talk about, I don't actually get to put fingers on keyboards too much uh, in, in, a, in a practitioner uh, sense, but uh, I get to talk to a lot of people who do get to talk to and, and do this work out in the field uh, with the ultimate goal of operationalizing technology and security in a way that, that not only protects the business value, but helps hopefully generate some value as well. I think that I do truly believe there's an opportunity for that. And um, so today's conversation, uh, we're going to be, it's driven by a book that uh, actually my co-founder already had a chat about. It's called Wiring the Winning Organization. And there are two writers, two authors for this, uh, Stephen J. Spear, who Marco had the chance and pleasure of speaking with, and a uh, longtime friend and uh, and counterpart, not counterpart, peer, I should say, in the industry, Gene Kim. Gene, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Sean, it's so good to be talking to you, and uh, we were talking before the show, and I think it's been 20 plus years since we first met. Uh, yeah, it explains the Sand the circles, RSA circles, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely conference circles. Uh, yeah, it goes back to uh, a lot of mutual friends that uh, that that ran in circles with me uh, at Symantec and, and cross paths, obviously, with, with the work you did at Tripwire. And and uh, it's great to great to be connected with you still after all these years. So a Absolutely. few days have passed, a few days have passed. Uh, and years of, and decades. That's amazing. <laughs> years and decades. <laughs> um, and uh yeah, congrats on all the all the amazing things that you've done, and and uh, I know your one of your earlier books uh, was it's definitely a huge hit and continues to be a resource for many folks. Uh, I continue to hear that, so um, congratulations on that. We're going to be talking about your your current book. Uh, that's uh, 
that's that's available to folks if I'm not mistaken. But before we get there, um, I, I'd like maybe for you to paint a, a picture of your journey into infosecurity. Maybe touch on a bit uh, about what Tripwire did and some of the things that that were revolutionary in in those days um, as you as you brought that organization and that team to to life. And uh, and then from there, some of the other things you've been involved with um, to to bring us up to date at least. And then and then we'll I, I suspect we'll use it to kind of figure out what has changed in our lives uh, from a technology <clears throat> and, and threat perspective. For sure. Yeah. In fact, maybe uh, I can rewind. Uh, uh, if, let's start from the beginning. Like, how did I get into information security? And uh, uh, the answer starts when I was in high school. It was uh, 1987. I was uh, actually working part-time as a system administrator at uh, Prisma Supercomputers, which eventually got bought by uh, Sun Microsystems. And uh, this was uh, around the time of the Internet Morse worm uh, that hit on November 2nd, 1988. And uh, I think anyone who's doing sysadmin work uh, or information security will remember that because 10% of all the servers on the Internet <laughs> were taken down by this uh, remote execution vulnerability. And it couldn't uh, – so I was uh, applying for colleges and – uh, the person who was doing the most amount of writing on this was uh, Dr. Gene Spafford at Purdue University. And so I ended up going there for my undergraduate. Uh, I did an independent study with him. And uh, this is actually what uh, eventually ran into uh, a project that uh, our goal was, all right, how do you sort of detect and ideally prevent these things from happening and enable quicker detection and recovery? And uh, that was really the uh, the birth of the uh, tool that eventually became Tripwire. And uh, uh, we, after I left Purdue. I went to University of Arizona where I got my master's degree in uh, uh, compilers and networking. And uh, we created a startup to help commercialize uh, Tripwire in 1997. Uh, so I was there for 13 years. I was the uh, technical co-founder. I was the uh, uh, CTO. And I left in 2010, right before, um, it was right after we finished our filing to go public. And even though Tripwire didn't make it to the public markets, I mean, it was just, a, I'm so grateful for that experience. And so after I um, left Tripwire. I spent three years uh, finishing a book called The Phoenix Project, which was a novel about a uh, reluctant VP of operations who uh, had to deal with uh, terrible code that was never really tested before uh, got pushed into production, was never secured. <laughs> it was just a, um, it was modeled after one of my favorite books called The Goal. That was about a, that was written in 1986. It was a novel about a manufacturing plant manager who had to, uh, uh, fixes cost and due date issues in 90 days. Otherwise, it would shut the plant down. <laughs> and so you know, uh, my co-authors and I, for almost uh, 15 years, we wanted to write essentially the goal, but for the IT context. And one of my favorite characters in that uh, book is uh, not the protagonist, who's the kind of the uh, VP of IT operations, but uh, John, the chief information security officer, uh, who is really kind of a caricature of myself. He was the shrill, uh, hysterical person who was focused on technical minutia that everyone despised, ignored, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, it has this kind of transformation that uh, as he realizes that you know he needs to shift left, integrate into uh, uh, the daily work of development, QA operations, uh, and really help kind of advance the goals of the uh, the organization, the business. Uh, and so that came out in 2013, and that sold uh, almost a, a million copies since then. And so I'm just so delighted that's really been uh, adopted as a kind of like a banner of like uh, around the DevOps community. And so that's been my field of study for uh, at least 15 years. 
uh, this really kind of a subset of the 23-year journey studying high-performing technology organizations, you know, that had the best project due date performance and development, they had best operational reliability, stability, and ops, but they also had the best posture of security and compliance. And so that's a journey that took me into the DevOps movement. Uh, since 2014, I've been running a conference called the DevOps Enterprise Summit, um, you know, studying not so much the tech giants, um, you know, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, but instead large complex organizations that have been around for decades or centuries and showing that how been, they've been using those same principles and patterns and, uh, you know, using it to help their organizations win. And we, we recently renamed it the Enterprise Technology Leadership uh, Summit uh, because it's not just dev and ops, it's dev and ops and security and, you know, and the business and the product owners and, you know, things like generative AI, platform engineering, uh, you know, so it's just, same programming, but uh, many people thought that uh, we had sort of outgrown that name. So we had uh, 19 conferences, uh, over 1,100 technology leaders across some of the best-known industry verticals. Um, and so just to wrap up, I mean, uh, what I've been working on for the last three years is uh, working on this book called Wiring the Winning Organization. My co-author is Dr. Steven Spear, uh, who uh, pioneered the study of the Toyota production system. So he wrote the famous decoding the DNA of the Toyota production system. Uh, that's the uh, 1999 Harvard Business Review article, probably the most widely downloaded Harvard Business Review article of all time. And uh, so he extended that work beyond just manufacturing, but to engine design at Pratt & Whitney, to helping build a safety culture at Alcoa. And uh, the quest we've been on for the last three and a half years is, you know, what is in common between Agile and DevOps and safety culture and Toyota production system and Lean? And... Uh, our conclusion is that they are all incomplete expressions of a far greater whole, but it's actually one that's very simple to explain. Uh, and so I just, uh, it's been the most intellectually challenging thing I've ever worked on, but also the, one of the most rewarding uh, because it can, I think, help us explain why does DevOps work? Why do organizations work the way they do? Uh, how is it that, you know, what must information security do to truly integrate into the work of everyone in the technology value stream? Anyway, Sean, how am I doing here so far? <laughs> this is fantastic. I mean, my, it's fantastic. My my brain's going a mile a minute here. Um, yeah, because I I think if we look back, it was networks and applications, right? <laughs> and, and a few few different operating systems, and and things have just blown up. I mean, you have multiple operating systems, some of them on devices local, a lot of them in in what's called the cloud now. And there's abstraction <laughs> layers and containers and virtualization and all kinds of all kinds of stuff in there and APIs to, to connect them all together. And all that I just described is kind of the tech piece. And then you, you pointed out that there's also the culture, right? Yeah. And, and, oh yeah, there's also the business. What are we doing this for? Not just because we can, or because it's cool, right? Yep. We're doing this for a reason. And, oh yeah, by the way, we need to have high quality and good performance and, <laughs> and, and security, which connects the other two to the other two as well. And even as you're describing your journey, and as I'm kind of putting out a few words here, <laughs> even in not in connected form, it, it's become really complex. Um, so I'm intrigued by how you approach this um, in a way, because you said it's simple. Yeah. To me, it's, to me, it's complex having, <laughs> having, I'm not not in, not recently been back in the day. I used to build stuff, used to QA stuff, used to run teams, used to run products, and those were challenging, right? Bringing a product yeah. to market, it's challenging. Small or large, challenging. Enterprise, 
super, super complex. Um, so how do you simplify? Yeah. What, and what we're trying to talk about here. I love the, <clears throat> I love there's a saying that says, uh, anyone can make something simple appear complex. It takes <laughs> it's a different problem entirely to take something complex <laughs> and make it uh, look simple. And I'll just make share kind of three kind of huge aha moments I've had over the last two decades that really kind of in the last three years just came to these searing aha moments. Uh, so one of them is uh, the notion that, you know, in almost every domain, you know, whether it's software, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's engine design, whether it's uh, uh, in military uh, operations, uh, one of the key problems is managing the so is managing the socio part of the socio technical system. And so, uh, um, you know, and there's actually so much in common. In fact, I think what's exciting about uh, this work with uh, Dr. Steven Spear is we're saying the same sort of engineering sensibilities that we use design and manage the technical parts of the system, we can also use to manage and understand the socio parts of the socio-technical system. They call that sort of layer three. Layer one is, you know, the object being worked on, whether it's the code, uh, the application, uh, the uh, part being assembled, whether it's the uh, engine uh, being designed. Uh, layer two is the tools that we use, but layer three is a social circuitry. And uh, we use the word circuit very deliberately because a circuit in an electrical system, in hydraulics is always taking something in abundance in one place and delivering it to where it's needed. Um, and so, you know, in the ideal, everyone has what they need, uh, when they need it, they're talking to who they need to, they get it at the right time, the right place, in the right format. In the not ideal, and this is so much of what, what went wrong in the Phoenix Project, is no one has what they need, <laughs> right? Uh, they have to uh, scavenge and forage for what they need to get information rights, approvals, decision rights, uh, requirements, code, license keys, you know, uh, you know, no one can get anything done and even when they do, it's not <laughs> at the right time, in the right place, in the right format. And so, uh, and that is all a function of uh, the social circuitry. Uh, the, the second, I think, really big insight for me was that I learned that managing hospitals um, was actually much, much simpler 70 years ago because there were essentially two functional specialties. You had the doctors and the nurses, and there was really no technology. Um, and compare that to now, you have scores of functional specialties just in doctors, right? Let alone nurses, supply chains, uh, you know, uh, you know, pharmacy, et cetera, right? In fact, the radiology department is actually now four separate technologies, which all have the layer two and layer one work. I mean, so the amount of communication coordination uh, is is so sadly, right, often outstrips the ability for the layer three social circuitry to actually work, which is why it's so awful often to be in a uh, healthcare setting. Um, and so you take a look at technology, like, uh, you know, before, maybe 70 years ago, right, uh, we didn't have dev and ops, you had just the devs <laughs> who were responsible for operations. Now you have dev, ops, security, you have containers, you have platforms, you have all these things, right? And so uh, this explains, I think, why it's so increasingly challenging, you know, to manage, you know, these very complex socio-technical systems. Um, and I think that the third thing um, is that, uh, you know, shifting left is right. In fact, one of the metaphors we use um, in the book that I'm just so proud of is like, uh, is we're saying so much of knowledge work is like moving a couch. So you have two people moving a couch, let's call them Steve and Gene. And you would think that this is all brawn work, no you know, thinking needed. And yet, you know, for them to move a couch, there's actually all these problems they need to solve. Like, where's the center of gravity? around which axis do you rotate to get through a narrow doorway, to get through a narrow winding staircase, who goes first, should they face forwards or backwards? And 
You don't need consultants. You don't need focus groups, right? Just by picking up the couch and trial and error, fast feedback, you know, Steve and Gene will be able to figure out how to, you know, achieve the goal. But there's all these things that we as leaders can do to make it far more difficult. Like we can turn off all the lights, right? <laughs> and it gets more dangerous, takes longer. We can damage the furniture and the room. Um, we can introduce a lot of background noise, uh, like a siren. And, uh, or we can introduce an intermediary preventing Steve and Gene from directly talking to each other. So they can't communicate and coordinate. And so they can no longer operate as a team. So instead we make them go through uh, JIRA tickets or we have them go through complex approval processes through the GRC systems. <laughs> and so um, it means that they can no longer communicate and coordinate and solve a problem together. And so the, the metaphor um, of the couch is really around joint cognition, joint problem solving. I think the reason why uh, shifting left have been such a breakthrough. Well, first allowing Dev and Ops to work together and move a couch together is what created these amazing outcomes where you can, you know, uh, organizations like Amazon, they do 136,000 deployments per day, safely, securely, uh, securely, you know, with reliability um, because we have them actually talking to each other, <laughs> right? And moving a couch together. Where does information security fit in? It's that before the information security person had to help move the couch. Uh, so they had to be there for every couch moving operations and there's just not enough of uh, us. And so what does security really need to do? They create tools so that Steve and Gene can do the work independently, right? So that, uh, you know, uh, security can create these, you know, paved roads that, you know, if you, uh, I'm sort of mixing metaphors here, but as long as, um, you know, developers use that paved road to get in production, you know, they can be the first line of defense, right? Because they will own 80, 90% of the control requirements, um, you know, liberating the developers to worry about things that only they can do. So uh, anyway, uh, how am I doing here? Yeah, I love those. I love those three points, and um, it, it reminds me of, uh, well, yeah, just I mean, so many things we can talk about. But just yesterday, I, I um, I had to uh, had to go to the dentist. For me too, for, two days for, ago, <laughs> for something that was going on with with the tooth, and um, I arrive, and they said that we didn't allocate enough time for your appointment because we need to do all this work. And I said, uh, no, you've already done that work and it didn't work, which is why I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> and it was this weird, this goes to your point of giving the right information at the right time for who needs it. And there was this multiple exchange between the front desk and the doctor and then myself yeah. sorting out that no, the work didn't need to be done because it had been done. Um, which very inefficient, right? Uh, if the doctor had actually set up for that procedure and pulled all the materials, <clears throat> could be a lot of waste. And of course, my experience as the customer, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't really care. I mean, it all got sorted out in the end, but not a great experience for the customer either. So not, not having the information ready at the right time can have a huge impact on on the outcome of what you're trying to achieve. And the other thing that I want to point to is the um just the moving the couch and i think you, you described it as a bit of trial and error right we can will if will it go up these the stairs and, <laughs> and through the landings and through the doorway um you can try or you could bring somebody like security in or quality assurance in and say here's what you can expect Let's do that math. <laughs> Let's yeah. run through those scenarios before we even try so that we don't 
either before we release or in front of the in front of the customer <laughs> yeah run run into this run into this problem and uh yeah so i'll, I'll leave it there for you so you no i love that. that in fact i think yeah you've really picked up on like what when we're saying that there's really three mechanisms of performance um and maybe just to set this up a little bit just to uh, maybe describe adequately just how much of an aha moment this is uh many of you might know that i spent uh one of the things i'm most professionally proud of is working on something called the state of devops research uh this was dr nicole forsgren and just humble it was this cross-population study that spanned over thirty-six thousand respondents uh over six years and the goal was really understand what does high performance look like and so we, it was just amazing these high performers during multiple deployments per day uh, there, uh, you know, the amount of time required to go from code committed to running in production was one hour or less. Uh, you know, when things went wrong, uh, you know, they could fix it in uh, again one hour or less, and this is like two or three orders of magnitude uh, better than their peers. And so, the top two predictors of performance was one was architecture, uh, which was you know to what degree can teams work independently of each other without a lot of fine grained communication and coordination. Um, and you know, when something goes wrong, you know. Does it cause a small failure or a big failure? Kind of, uh, we often call that the blast radius. And the second uh, thing that was uh, the top predictor of performance was um, was the presence of like psychological safety. Uh, and and so what we so whenever you see you know these amazing transformations from you know, high from not high performing to high performing in technology, if you look at something similar in manufacturing in uh, engineering, you actually see something very very similar at work. And what we're saying is, there's really only three mechanisms of performance to go from you know not great to great. And so it's basically three things. One is slowification. Uh, in other words, there are certain things you should do uh, when you are working in highly consequential environments where you can't undo uh, that have kind of enormous outage cost. Uh, you can't and you know and under those conditions you can't learn, right? Uh, you can't do a lot of experiments. So therefore, you have to do that in planning and preparation. So whenever you see something, uh, someone doing something, some splendid, exquisite work in highly consequential environments, you just know that they invested in planning and preparation. And so we think, see that things like that in chaos, like Chaos Monkey, right? We we test and inject faults into the production environment to see if we are as resilient as we think we are. You can see that in like. Uh, uh, you know, consequential you know, military operations um, and so forth, right? Planning and preparation, right, is where you learn, not production. Production is where you learn, but it's better to learn it in these kind of safer environments where it's slower, we can have more control, you know, we can iterate and so forth. The second uh, um, mechanism of performance is simplification. Make the problems easier to solve. So we do that by solving problems either incrementally, so that's like agile, uh, like lean startup and so forth. Right, we don't solve the whole problem at once. We solve them in slices. The second is that we split the problems up so that instead of one large, interconnected, highly intertwined, highly coupled system, right, we divide up into smaller pieces. So that's like the Amazon uh, 2001 transformation, where they went from one code base uh, that all had to deploy at the same time to hundreds of them. So that's what allows them to do 136,000 deployments per day. And then the orthogonal one is linearization. You know, we do the same thing, but for linear sequential processes. And it creates this independence of action that allows teams to work independently of each other to you know, uh, improve independently of each other. And then the last mechanism, uh, we had slowification, simplification, and then amplification. We have to amplify weak signals of failure so we can act upon them decisively you know, before they become huge failures, right? Uh, and so we can better prevent, detect, and correct. And I think for information security, right? It's so important that we, uh, you know, we detect these weak signals of failure 
uh, so that we can fix them before it gets into production, <laughs> right? We can, uh, so we can, you know, train engineers. We can, uh, you know, improve and harden the environments or the uh, create better CI/CD pipelines to deploy code into promotion. We can increase the telemetry uh, because, again, you know, we want to be able to take every one of these weak signals, right, and act on them so that we can, you know, uh, better achieve our most important goals. Um, and so your solification one example I love, right? Uh, before we actually do the staircase operation, maybe we should walk it, <laughs> walk the path <laughs> exactly. with someone who has a lot of experience doing it, right? Like our information security uh, peers. Uh, so we have a better shot of uh, not having to see it for the first time in production. Yeah. How am I doing? Yeah, so how, I, I love it, Gene. Um, I mean, I geek out on this stuff anyway. So uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. How? Let's stick with the area that you've been most involved with over the past few years uh, in, in the DevOps. Um, so we can use, let's pull on some examples there. What I'm, what I'm trying to understand is, I mean, let's start with team structure and then maybe yeah. we can move into some of the processes because what, what you're describing, um, you touched on it earlier in, in the context of specialization, right? Looking at the, the, the doctors or the hospital, there's a ton of specialization, which leads me to believe perhaps we need specialization in DevOps as well. So how, how does, how does this fit or how, how do you apply what you're learning directly to DevOps? And maybe we can, we can blow it out to the bigger security program to, to help. Yeah, for sure. Space. That's a great, um, it's a great place to start. And I think, uh, yeah, I think one of the, there's a lot of indications that just from looking at the space that says there's a lot more functional specialties than there used to be, right? In fact, you know, you have uh, just, you have containers, Kubernetes, right? I mean, uh, in fact, I, I'll tell you about all the work I don't want to do as a developer. I don't want to understand logging and how to connect my, uh, you know, Java logging framework to where it needs to go. I don't want to, uh, uh, every time I connect to a database, it takes me a week, <laughs> right? Uh, authentication authorization, I'm hopeless. Uh, data masking, uh, haven't, <laughs> so maybe I'll do it someday. Secrets management, I finally figured out after like my uh, uh, CICD tool leaked my cloud credentials. So I had to figure out how to do that. That's a great idea. Uh, but uh, that's not, I managed to kick that can down the road for a couple of years. Um, uh, uh, oh my gosh. Uh, so I actually saw a properly written Kubernetes deployment file and I almost fell on my chair because it looked nothing <laughs> like my <laughs> Kubernetes deployment file. And so each one of these things, I mean, in any significant organization, uh, you know, let's say thousands of developers, you see these functional groups that say, hey, look, you don't have to learn all these things. You know, you can use my library, my shared service, my platform, right? And I will take care of all those things for you, right? So that uh, even at Google, um, it turns out you know, you're, uh, there's a group of five people at Google that owns the Java platform. And your average, so to liberate developers from having to learn about how to do their Java 8 to Java uh, 11 migration, right? It turns out that maybe not that easy and it changes garbage collection and memory models and all that. Uh, this is actually... Um, not saying that most developers can't understand it. It's just that they don't want to. If they're like me, <laughs> they have other things to do than uh, understand all the vagaries of you know these uh, different uh, JVMs. So anyway, uh, so, so I me, think let me pause you there because what, what you're describing sounds an awful lot like, even if it's not formal. I, I would imagine that Google does have a formal platform engineering program. Yeah, is, is that? 
what you're talking about there? Is that what you see us moving <laughs> towards more? Uh, oh, for sure. And I'm saying, yeah. you know, you have uh, platforms, you know, it was like deployment platforms or, you know, the environment container platforms. Uh, and I'm saying, you know, if you take a, we can even generalize it further and say, there's just a lot of specialization of skills happening. Like, you know, the small, you know, Java group that supports thousands of Java developers at Google. That's an example of a, a platform capability or a specialization that says, hey, developers, you solve the business problem that you're, uh, you know, chartered to do, and we will worry about the intricacies of, you know, the Java platform, including the JVM. Uh, there's similar capabilities for the build systems, the test systems, the approval, uh, the code review systems, right? All of those are specialties. And uh, I think if we open up the aperture and look over the decades, there are many, 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 many more specialties now uh, than there were a decade ago, just like there are many more specialties now in the hospital than there were 70 years ago. Does that resonate with you? It, it certainly does. So I, I want to know now, curious minds want to know, Gene. Yeah. Uh, how the three principles, the slow vacation. Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do teams adopt that? Yeah. Is it at right. an individual level? Is it at a team yeah. level? Is it at a functional level? Is it at ops level? Where, where does that stuff come in? I, th I think the answer is at every level. Uh, but you know, let, let's be clear. The leader is ultimately responsible for uh, allowing and enabling everyone to do the work easily and well, right? That's a function of the layer three social circuitry. And when everyone's stuck, right? When everyone, uh, let me just tell you a quick story of like how bad it can get. Um, you know, at Amazon in the early 2000s, you know, they were doing, say, hundreds of deployments a year, you know, back in their late 90s. And because everything was so tightly coupled together, uh, as they added more product categories, you know, they were from books and music to 33 categories at the time, where, uh, you know, to get anything done, you had to communicate and coordinate across multiple groups. There was this absurd situation that Werner uh, Vogels, then and current CTO of Amazon, said, uh, you know, the digital team, so it was uh, Kindle, music, uh, they uh, had this absurd situation where in order for a customer to order a product, they had to provide a shipping address. Uh, for a digital product, it makes no sense, right? And, but so they went to the 60 different ordering teams uh, to try to lobby to make a change, and they said, we didn't budget for it. And so they were stuck, right, because everyone had lost that independence of action. And so, uh, you know, another side effect was that you couldn't scale any piece independently, uh, so um, this is what led to that famous memo that said, we're going to move to the two pizza team, right? So that every team can work and deliver value independently to the customer, right? Without this massive level of communication coordination. Um, and that's what led them to create these microservices, uh, more service oriented architectures. And so they you know, went from hundreds to thousands of services. Uh, and that's what allowed these teams to work independently of each other. They, we liberated, uh, thus liberating the teams to work independently of each other. Um, another key piece was that uh, instead of the dev versus ops silo, where ops did the deployment, ops had to be mobilized when things went wrong. They moved to the you build it, you run it. <laughs> so the feedback went to the right place. And it turns out security, this is a huge boon for security because it means that it's not only you build it, you run it, but you secure it. It's your responsibility. You are the first line of defense. We can act as coach and consultant to help you secure it, but and we can even give you tools to do it uh, so you don't have to make your own seatbelts, right? Uh, we can provide you a trusted seatbelt that everyone uh, at uh, everyone can use. Um, so this is this is a great example of simplification. 
we took a big, you know, uh, intertangled system and split it up to multiple pieces to liberate independence of action. That was enabled by slowification. Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, by putting out this memo, said, hey, look, uh, we will do whatever it takes to move to two pizza teams. Now, this was a multi-year, allegedly $1 billion plus re-architecture of uh, Amazon. But again, you know, the rewards were huge, right? Uh, they were able to go from 10 deployments that mostly didn't finish to 136,000 a day, delivering capabilities at a wild, dizzying rate. And actually, part of that, AWS was born. Um, and then amplification the need, you know, uh, to put concretely, you know, they found that uh, a whole bunch of troubleshooting uh, was very, very difficult. Like when one service went down, uh, there was often not enough instrumentation to actually say what went wrong. Was it me, my service? Was it a service I depended upon? <laughs> like who gets paged, right? I mean, so um, they actually had to create much harder boundaries around services. And, uh, you know, if you have a 30 minute SLA time and it takes you seven attempts to page the right group. I mean, you've already blown through your SLA window. Anyway, so uh, how am I doing here? <laughs> I think you, you totally blew it, Gene. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I love that story and uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And what I'd like to do, I, I think we've touched on quite a bit and spoken fairly well to security uh, yeah. in DevOps, right? Right. So organizations building stuff that need to have security built in from the get-go. Um, I want to talk about security teams that don't just look after the bespoke stuff, but all the commercial junk <laughs> that gets tossed on them for communications and supply chain management and I don't know, uh, customer service and all, yeah, all, all the things that, that they bring into the bigger picture. Yeah. What can they learn from these same three elements that, uh, you oh, eloquently to, uh, DevOps? Oh, that's a great question. Look, I'm going to try to think my way through the answer. Uh, <laughs> so let me start with like, what's often most familiar is, uh, uh, so for custom software that you build internally. Uh, one of the most powerful things that security can do is embed a security person, uh, you know, into those groups. And it was actually Justin Arbuckle, uh, a mutual friend acquaintance of ours. He was CISO at um, GE Capital. And he said, like, one of the best things he, uh, and breakthroughs that he experienced was having the security people show up to the uh, the development standups and the weekly demos. And I was like, I was initially mystified by this because. My feeling was like it's so informal. It's very different than the kind of heavyweight approvals and um, kind of the gotcha exercises where you kind of scan a security application, you know, approve it to go into production. And uh, he gave me two examples that I thought were just phenomenal. Uh, he said, um, this is your opportunity as a security professional to see, oh, hey, look, um, here's the business goal they're trying to achieve. Oh, hey, they're, they're actually taking, you know, um, PI, you know, personal identifiable information. Oh, this is a good way to be able to tell them, do you know that once you store that information, you have to protect it? <laughs> and, you know, there's things that we can do uh, to help you and tools that we can bring to bear. But maybe the best thing to do is actually not store it. <laughs> like, uh, thus obviating that whole surface area of uh, vulnerability and exploit. And I, I think the aha moment for me was like, oh, instead of this high ceremony handoff process, uh, here's a, Here's a 
a, a dialogue we can have that's low stakes and it really mirrors kind of what friends do when they help each other as opposed to like uh, high stakes approvals. Um, and maybe that's the kind of level, you know, that, that's how security can help move the couch, right? Versus, you know, be the inspector at the end saying you moved it all wrong, start all over. Uh, so I thought that was just a. Um, I don't want security sitting on the couch where you're trying to move. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Not like that. Like no, this. <laughs> no, exactly. No, turn left. Turn left. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah. so that's a great example of like uh, amplification. Uh, it's a great example of just like, uh, you know, being a more integral part of the process is where you're valued. I think for like things that are commercial things, I, you know, I think this is where, again, security can help because, uh, you know, whether it's uh, leveraging uh, processes like, oh, hey, here's a standard process that you can use to sort of give to the vendor and uh, have them make sure that they have their SOC 2 review that uh, we can, uh, you know, that we can rely on them for security. So therefore, we're not <laughs> reliant on the security of that, whether it's for the applications or data. Um, you know, it, if it's not that, then at least giving them, uh, giving whoever wants this tool in a process that they can go through that, uh, you know, we can set expectations that if they do X, Y, and Z, then we can respond with A, B, and C. Um, and you know, I think this just uh, shows that security isn't free, right? Uh, I love that. Things in technology in IT is uh, like a puppy. You know, puppies aren't free. It's not the capital cost that gets you. It's the ongoing uh, maintenance of it that's really expensive. So you know, these are things that I think, one, show security is a value add, but it also allows people who need to be responsible, we enable them to be better responsible for that. So I, we're coming close to the end here, but I want to touch on uh, the social circuitry uh, point. Um, I think it's related to what you just described, but I have a feeling you have a much more succinct point to make specifically around social circuitry mm bringing broad security mechanisms throughout the organization. How, how does that look? Stand up meetings? Yes. But beyond, beyond that, do you have any more yeah, you know, uh, examples to share where that's that a great question. From? And I would say instead of uh, a concrete example, let me give you kind of the spectrum of examples. And for me, um, you know, the spectrum of what interactions look like and, you know, in software architecture, we call that, you know, coupling and cohesion. And so what we're saying is like when Steve and Gene move a couch, right, they are inherently coupled together. And it means that, uh, you know, if Gene walks off, <laughs> right, Steve can't do his work, right? And uh, But it's because of their inherent need to communicate and coordinate and co-create. Um, but there's also examples of things when we don't want things coupled together. And so like one example is like air traffic control and pilots in a plane, right? And so in an air traffic controller, right, the controllers can change shifts without permission from the pilots. And pilots can change who's on the radio without permission from the air traffic controllers because all of the – what's important is in the message, not the messenger. They've agreed on protocols. They've agreed on you know processes and norms, uh, vernacular, um, and that actually creates independence of action. And so as a security person, I would say what things do I need kind of highly coupled uh, behaviors, right, where you, know, you just want the security person to sit side by side with the developer and solve a problem together, right? And you don't want to go through work tickets. You don't want to go through forums or eight levels of management. <laughs> just go up eight levels and down eight levels. You know, just have them sit next to each other and solve a problem together, right? Kind of the ultimate DevSecOps co-creation activity. But there's other things that you don't want security coupled to, right? Um, we don't want every security change and every security test to go through a security engineer, 
right? Those are things that you want it built into the tools so that that can happen independent of the security professional, right? Or there's approval forms, right? Where you don't want to, uh, you know, you just, I fill out a form and I know that within a week or two, right? I will get a response back, right? That's so we decoupled uh, security from those functions. And so I think for me, those are just two great examples of like uh, for a security leader, as we design kind of the interactions that we want, where do I want, you know, face-to-face contact, you know, we're working on a problem for a half a day, a day, maybe a week, right? Where you want that security person involved in every step, like in a generative AI project, right? Where, hey, look, uh, we, we have a common goal. We're going to create our own processes, but security has got to be in the room versus, uh, you know, activities where, hey, look, uh, I understand what the inputs are. Uh, I understand what the outputs need to be. You know, you do not need to be coupled to me, right? We, uh, tell us what you need and uh, we'll prioritize it and, you know, get, get it back to you. Right. And we have a negotiation about what the SLA windows should be. Um, but yeah, this is something that, you know, we can do by ourselves. I think it's a really good lens. And I think what went wrong in GRC systems is that uh, we mistook a lot of activities that we thought had to be highly coupled that should not have been coupled at all. Mm. Yeah. Interesting point. Interesting point. And I, I was certain we were going to, take a dive into gen ai and we almost we almost made it through without touching on it at all (laughs) you mentioned it once there um i I think maybe we'll come back and we can have a a dedicated conversation to that because what i want to do is talk about um people sitting on the couch reading the book that you and and steve uh, wrote um quickly tell me not quickly tell me uh tell us who you wrote the book for and what you hope they will get from it as they read it. Is it a resource? Is it a, is it a thrilling novel? Is it, (laughs) tell us who it's for and what you hope to hope folks. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. In fact, you know, um, you know, look at the back cover because often, you know, just a little secret between um, authors, you know, we often use the back cover as a kind of a proxy for who the audience is. So, um, one person is Paul Gaffney. So he used to run technology for Home Depot, Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh, uh, he ran, he was a CTO and supply chain head at Kohl's. Anyway, so yeah, a technology leader. One of them is Phil Venables. He was, uh, um, he was a CISO at Goldman Sachs for, uh, I think the longest tenure of any CISO I've ever known. And he's now CISO at Google Cloud, but he was also, also a former board director for Goldman Sachs Bank. Um, and, uh, Dave Silverman, he was uh, one of the co-authors of Team of Teams. Jeffrey Liker, Dr. Jeffrey Liker wrote the Toyota Way. So I think, okay, so I'm just sort of reloading in my head. So it's for the technology leader, uh, but also their boss, right? I think over my journey, I've seen so many things where the success of the technology leader, and that includes security, is so dependent on who their boss is. You change out their boss, and you and it was this great organization, uh, falls apart, because they no longer had the person who was setting the tone at the top that was creating the air cover for the technology organization to succeed. And to me, that breaks my heart. <laughs> so the goal, one of the goals of this book is to show the, uh, that person who the technology function reports to that, you know, these things that leaders need to do is not just, uh, just for technology. It, it should be familiar to any person who succeeded in supply chains, manufacturing, engineering. Um, and incidentally, one thing that I'm super proud of is that the Ford was written by Admiral John Richardson. 
So uh, he used to uh, be in charge of the U.S. naval reactors. So they are comprehensively responsible for all the design and operations of nuclear reactors for every uh, reactor in the seagoing fleet for the U.S. Navy. And he became the chief of naval operations um, for the entire U.S. Navy. So that's 600,000 sailors and civilians who support them. Uh, and so after having left the Navy, he's now on the board of Boeing uh, at Exelon, uh, the largest operator of nuclear reactors in the U.S., and now green energy. So uh, I, I'm hoping that uh, that this shows that the book is really aimed to show that whether you're a technology leader, I think a lot of these themes will be familiar, but this there are universal truths and principles at work here that isn't just technology. It's manufacturing. It's whatever domain that successful leaders come from. It's applicable to them too, and it should be familiar to them. Sean, how am I doing? Yeah, and I – so – I was trying to do the math and I, I stopped it too, but I, I have a feeling others will, will keep doing the math. Two being one, the book you buy for yourself. Two, <laughs> the book you buy for your boss. But then I'm just thinking, well, there are other leaders uh, that that need to understand these things as well to some degree, right? Especially when we start talking about the social circuitry. Absolutely. Uh, that That common understanding and appreciation for what's going on is, is needed. So perhaps the boss pays it forward and buys it for the whole team, <laughs> all your, all your peers. Um, but I think the point is for me, uh, the, these are concepts that you've studied you and Steve have studied, have practiced, have guided, uh, and, and seen in action, <laughs> right? Good and bad. And, uh, yeah, why not learn from, from somebody who has a lot of information and, and knowledge like you and you and Steve. So I love that. Uh, can, can I leave with uh, maybe two quotes that, uh, yes, that please. remind me of Absolutely. Uh, Winston Churchill said, uh, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. I mean, it's the same thing with uh, the architecture and the social circuitry of an organization. We uh, create the social circuitry and architecture and forever after they shape us. Right. And so, it's one thing for us to do that within the technology organization. Maybe we can create a little island of uh, happiness and productivity and greatness. But ideally, that fits should fit in, you know, in an overall architecture of greatness, right? Uh, so that maybe the organization can learn from technology and get the air cover, right? And there we get the air cover that we need. And the last thing that I think has made this project so satisfying to me is they say the goal of science is to explain the most amount of observable phenomena with the fewest number of principles. You know, confirm deeply held intuitions and reveal surprising insights. And that's exactly what this uh, whole creation process has been for me, which is why I find it so well, so intellectually challenging, but so gratifying because, uh, you know, uh, the notion that you can explain the most with the least. And uh, I, I'm hoping that people will walk away from the book saying, oh, this gives me a language to talk about these things, either why things went right or uh, why things went wrong. Yeah, and it reminds me of, which I'm, I'm often told uh write less be more, be more succinct and to the <laughs> point um and i i think yeah i think i think if you can if you can be simple and and share that simplicity in a way that others can can uh, absorb it and then share it with others too uh, i think you've got a winner there um gene i could talk to you for hours um i'd definitely love to have you on again and uh so we'll, we'll, we'll make that happen. Uh, we got to touch on Gen AI at some point. Yeah, somehow. Oh um, but until then, I want to thank, uh, thank you for 
one, putting that book together with your co-author. Uh, congratulations on that. And I want to thank everybody for uh, joining us for this conversation. I'll put a link into the show notes uh, so people can find your book, so people can find you. And, uh, and I'll also include the link hesitantly to my co-founders, Marco's conversation <laughs> Fantastic. With, with Steve. Uh, I think, yeah, Steve definitely brings a different perspective uh, than you and I. Marco and Steve bring different perspectives than you and I did today, but none, uh, certainly not any less important. Oh, and highly recommended. I mean, just uh, th that was a phenomenal interview, and uh, just to have hear Steve talk about it from a different perspective, uh, you will hear just a, uh, a you will see glimpses of why it was so rewarding of a journey for yeah. me. So, uh, highly yeah. recommended, Sean. Uh, good, good job sticking with it to do the hard part. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just realized we only yes. win if they lose. Never mind. Don't <laughs> listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Well, Gene's pleasure to see you. I'm grateful to. Uh, have you in in uh, my circle after all these years and uh hope to hope to have you on again soon and uh keep well uh sean thank you so much for having me on and looking forward to seeing you again soon it has been way too long it has been all right thank you pentera the leader in automation security validation allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at Pentera.io. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity with Sean Martin, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this show and itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand with our conversations, you can sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.